Go ahead and pray, and we'll get into our message about envy this morning. Dear God, we come to you today, and Lord, we are grateful for the freedoms we have as Christians in this country. Lord, we do lift up those in closed nations, and we pray for their protection. We pray for your wisdom and your leading. Uh, Lord, I just ask that you would do your work among us this morning as we uh, listen for your voice as we are challenged, convicted, encouraged, and comforted. Lord, I just pray that you will bless our time together. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to talk today about envy or coveting or jealousy. Never done a whole sermon on this. I kind of view those three words as triplets. I think they're the same basic concept, and there are lots of faces of envy. It's an ugliness within us that I think all of us deal with at one time or another. I thought I would give you a face of envy or jealousy from a classic movie that I watched with my kids called Toy Story, so let's watch that clip. This is Woody, who is jealous or envious of the new toy, Buzz Lightyear. You know, in a couple of days, everything will be just the way it was. They'll see. They'll see. I'm still Andy's favorite toy. I'm on top of the world, living high. Right in my pocket. <laughs> Whoa. I was living the life. Things were just the way they should be. With the man in the sky like a bomb comes from no pocket or rocket. Some strange things are happening to me. Buzz Lightyear to the rescue! Strange things are happening to me. Strange things. Strange things are happening to me. I think most of us would acknowledge that there is some ugliness in us that we would call envy or jealousy or coveting. Maybe it is you have a sibling that continually feels like outshines you. Maybe you have somebody at work that you feel like everything always goes their way and you get the short end of the stick. 
It is something that is woven in our literature, in our storytelling. Uh, I think of Anastasia and Drusilla, the two stepsisters of Cinderella, who hated her beauty, her winsomeness, and wanted to keep her from being happy, her from you know, meeting the prince and, and getting that happily ever after. I think of the, uh, the movie Amadeus, where you have this religious composer, um, Salieri, who was you know, always in the shadow of Mozart, and he wanted to make beautiful music. He wanted to make the music of heaven to glorify God, and yet his talent was half that of Mozart, who he viewed as a brat and immoral, and was just, he was just eaten up with envy when he looked at this person. Or maybe you've watched the television show, Everybody Loves Raymond, and you have the two brothers, Ray and Robert, the Barone brothers, and, you know, poor Robert always felt like Ray was liked by the mom better, by the parents better, and that everybody always loved him, and he always kind of lived in the shadow of his sibling. You know, envy means basically to look upon with malice or resentment, It's tied in with discontentment, dissatisfaction, covetousness, and it really is, I love what one author said, a marriage of comparison and resentment. And I think it gets all of us at one time or another. Maybe we, you know, if I could just have their life for a week, or if I could just make the money that they make. One author, Harold Coffin, said, envy is the art of counting the other fellow's blessings instead of your own. Simply put, it's seeing the goodness of God in other people's lives and resenting it and ignoring the goodness and the blessings that God has put in your own life. I think of an Old Testament example where the nation of Israel, the Jewish nation, they had this unique, special relationship with God. He was their king and they were his people. They were his family. And yet, they come to Samuel the prophet, and they say, you know, we we want a king like all the other nations. They were envious. They were jealous of all the other nations. We want a king who leads us into battle. And Samuel warned them and said, I don't think you really want this. And God said, no, Samuel, give them a king. They've rejected me. And so they got Saul, who was a mess. And there was even eventually a civil war between the followers of Saul and the followers of David, who was the next king. Then they had David, and um, he, was, he was a good king. Saul wasn't a great king, but David was a good king. But at one point, there was a civil war there because Absalom, he grew jealous or envious of his own father and rebelled against David. And then we see Solomon, who had a pretty prosperous reign with Israel, but his son, the nation split in two. And so that envy of having a human king led to catastrophe, led to disaster, led to ruin for that nation. And sometimes we're even envious, you know, we're dissatisfied with who God made us to be. We're jealous of other people's gifts or opportunities or position. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 9, King Solomon says this, he says, better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I love that phrase, a roving of the appetite. 
I think that's a good picture, a good way to summarize envy or jealousy or coveting. It's a roving of the appetite. I want what you have. I want what he has. I want what she has. I don't want what God has given me. And it's detrimental. It hurts us. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Resentment, there are actual health effects from resentment, from that envy that eats at us. Augustine, the famous theologian, called it, he called envy the diabolical sin. Craig Groeschel gives us an example when he was a kid. He's an author and pastor that I appreciate. He talked about he had a sister named Lisa, and their grandmother on certain holidays would send money in a card. A lot of grandmothers do this. And his grandmother sent them each a card with $20 in it. So Lisa opens her card first. She opens it up. She's like, wow, grandma gave me $20. She's super excited. And Craig said, he goes, I don't really know why I did it, but I opened up my card. She couldn't see what I had in there. And I said, wow, grandma gave me $100. That is incredible. And Lisa just, her face just fell. And she even cried. Now, grandma heard about this incident. And so the next holiday, uh, Craig got his $20, but Lisa actually got $100. So, you know, you sow and you reap. There are all kinds of envy. There are different types of envy. Um, We need to understand that that it can show up in different ways. Uh, I think of Craig Groeschel again. He tells about his little daughter, Anna. She was seven years old at the time. And in their house, when you lost a tooth, you got one dollar. And so she comes... She comes to her dad, Craig, and, and she says, Daddy, Daddy, you're not going to believe this, but you know how I got $1 from our tooth fairy? And he says, yeah. And she said, my friend McKay says their tooth fairy brings her $5 for every tooth. And then she goes on, she goes, Daddy, Daddy, why? Why? This isn't fair. How come we only get $1 and McKay gets $5? And so as his mind began to race, what do I say? How do I respond to this? She said, well, Daddy, maybe we can find out which tooth fairy they use and switch to theirs. <laughs> but there's all kinds of envy. You could be envious about someone's appearance. We see this among women a lot. We live in a tough culture where women are airbrushed on magazines and on websites. And, you know, maybe your sister can wear a smaller size dress or, or pair of pants than you can. There can be appearance envy. There can be relational envy. Maybe uh, you feel like your spouse doesn't measure up to your friend's spouse. And you're like, man, you know, he, my, you know, my, my friend's spouse, her husband is a spiritual leader and he's handy around the house and he helps with the dishes and he's great with the kids. And my spouse, and then, you know, all the flaws emerge in your thinking. There can be that relational envy. It can be financial envy. There can be this sense that God owes us better than what we have received. And that sounds a little ugly, and we probably don't say it out loud, but there's a sense in which we feel like we didn't get what we were owed. I want to remind our, us in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 that Paul writes, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Let's step back and remember 
that what God owes us is wrath for defying him, for living sinful lives, for rebelling against his authority. And there can be real serious results of envy that we don't want in our lives. It destroys relationship. We see this at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. We see where Adam and Eve, they reach for that forbidden fruit, um, and they gave in to the temptation. Satan whispers to them, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Why did they do it? Why did they reach? I think in part because they were envious, jealous of God. They wanted to be like him. They wanted to have what he had. He was holding out on them. And so by doing that, they broke that relationship. We could move forward in the timeline, and we see in Genesis chapter 30 where two sisters, it's kind of a bizarre story, end up marrying the same man. Now that's a disaster. That's not going to be good. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, Leah and Rachel and Leah was envious, jealous of her sister Rachel because clearly their husband preferred Rachel. He loved her. He preferred her. He worked years um, to you know, pay the bride price and, and to have her as, as a bride in that culture. And unfortunately, her dad had tricked him into taking Leah first. And so she knew she was not the beloved wife. And yet we watch the story and we see it flip because in that culture, the way a wife demonstrated value was to give her husband sons. And in that culture, Leah gave her husband son after son after son. And the beloved wife, the favored wife, she did not. And so she was now envious of her sister. And so we see Rachel, it turns from Leah to Rachel. We see it, it flip, and we see jealousy and envy going both directions. It destroys relationship. It leads to a mess whenever we're envious, jealous of someone else. James um, chapter 3, verse 13 through 17 talks about this. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find what? Disorder, brokenness, and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Envy is ugly, and it destroys and damages our relationships. Socrates once said of envy that it was the ulcer of the soul. And where it can lead is actually exile, like a complete break. We see this in different things. We see where Satan uh, was envious of God. He wanted to be in charge. And so he rebelled against God, and now he is separated from heaven. And he will spend all eternity in a place called hell. We see Adam and Eve, when they were envious of God and they sinned, they were separated from the garden paradise, and they had to go into exile. So Satan had to go into exile. They had to go into exile. We see Cain when he's envious of Abel. God liked Abel's 
of sacrifice. He did not like Cain's sacrifice, and it ate at him. That marriage of comparison and resentment came together in Cain's heart, and he killed his own brother. What happened? He is cast out of the family, and he is now in exile. We see in Genesis, Jacob, who envied the blessing that his father was going to give to his brother Esau because Esau was the oldest. And so he deceives his father and takes the blessing, but then he ends up expelled in exile from the family for many years. So we see this again and again. We think envy and jealousy is minor, but it's not. It's major and can even be lethal. I was surprised. I'd never really read the Bible, like looking at it with this lens, looking for this particular sin. And so often it even leads to violence. In James chapter 4, 2, he says, but you desire, but do not have, so you kill, which I think is hyperbole in this particular passage, but you'll see as some examples I give, it can lead to that. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. You know, we go back to the movie I just showed, Toy Story. Uh, What happens in the story that kind of sets them on their big adventure is that Woody basically sets up a scenario that knocks his rival, knocks Buzz Lightyear out the window. And so it led to, you know, violence. We have Isaiah 14. I mentioned Satan, you know, rebelling against God. It leads to a violent ripping of that kingdom. We see, um, I mentioned Cain. It led to violence. In Genesis 37, we see the brothers of Joseph. You know, Joseph is favored by his dad. He's given a coat of many colors, which he wears with pride. And he's excited about. And it made all his siblings angry and envious, and jealous, and they coveted that coat, and so they plotted for his death, and they were going to kill him, but one of the brothers said, no, let's not kill him, and they sold him into slavery, which is pretty close, so you see this violence. We see in 1 Samuel 18, where King Saul, the first king of Israel, um, he had this amazing servant, David. He had this incredible general, soldier in his army, David, who loved him, who even became his son-in-law. And then what happens? They come back from battle, and the women begin to sing, Saul has slain his thousands, which that sounds pretty good. His head starts to puff up. But then the next line in the song is, and David his ten thousands. And Saul, just his heart, that marriage of comparison and resentment and that envy, just took over his heart and he turned against David and he hated David and he tried to murder David multiple times. And so you see that envy turning to violence. In 1 Kings 16, there's kind of a gruesome story in the Old Testament where there's these two prostitutes, they lived alone in a home and they each had a baby. They're asleep one night and one of the prostitutes um, smothered her baby by you know, rolling over on the, on the child. So then she realizes what happens later in the night. So she takes her dead child and exchanges it with the other woman's live child and acts like that hers died and that, you know, the original child lived. And so now the two of them, they're alone and they're arguing about this. They're fighting about this. They go before King Solomon. And so he says, look, he goes, I wasn't there. I don't know. And he pulls out a sword. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a sword. We're going to cut this baby in half, and you each get half. And one woman, one mother, immediately says, she can have the child. Let the child live. 
And the other woman says, cut him in half. You know, we each, we each get a half. And the king says, your responses tell me who the real mother is, the woman that will give up the child to save the child's life. But you see that envious, you know, this woman had lost her child. She's envious of the other woman's child, led to violence. She was willing to have that child die because of her, you know, just that coveting, that envy of that other mother. It's amazing. When we roll forward to the New Testament, we get to wicked King Herod. The Jews had waited for centuries and centuries for their Messiah. And when he's told the Messiah has been born, has arrived, is in Bethlehem, what does wicked King Herod do? His jealousy rises up in him, his envy. Oh, there's another king. Does he actually go worship? Does he celebrate? Absolutely not. He sends his army to kill every little boy in Bethlehem because of envy. We think of envy as being minor, but it's not. The scripture actually says in Mark 15 that the Jewish leaders handed Jesus over to die on the cross because of envy. They were envious of his power, of his miracles, of his popularity, and so that envy led to violence. We see envy wrapped around stories of human perversion throughout history. This is serious business. And too many of us have real moments of envy where we kind of hang on to God. I want to cling to God, but I want to grab somebody else's life. I want their gifts or their position or their opportunity or their money, whatever that might be. Envy's three favorite words, according to Jeff Cook, are why not me? Why not me? And so we need to step back from this attitude that God owes us anything, that the life that you have is not good enough. And we need to move forward because envy is, I love Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. It says, I saw that all the toil and achievement spring from one person envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so we see that phrase, meaningless. We see that chasing after the wind. There's no point. You can't get it. You can't grab it. And yet so much of human achievement is trying to best somebody else. Because I want to have more money. I want to look better. I want to look smart, whatever it might be. So how do we end envy? We're going to move through these quickly. My wife is a therapist, um, which I like to joke has saved me a lot of money over the years. But anyway, she's, so I, I'm like, tell me about envy. What, what would you say? And she gave a great therapist answer. She said, look, you should dig into the root issue. Because we're not envious about everything, right? We're not envious with everybody. There's certain things that trigger envy or jealousy or coveting in us. For one of you, it might be money. For another, it might be position. For another, it might be gifting. You know, what, what is that? She was telling me about, uh, she was listening to a speaker, and this woman said that she had a real, she was just eaten up with envy every time she met a woman who had a great father. And it was because she didn't have that. She didn't have a good father. And so that envy, that jealousy came from a good desire. She, she wanted a good father. And so when she understood what was happening, she's like, I chose to grieve that I didn't have a good father like those other women. 
And that helped her to move forward, helped her to walk away from that jealousy. And so sometimes you got to dig into the root issue. Get curious about who you're envious of, what you're envious about. And that could give you insight to help you move forward. Next is to remember God's command and calling. I think this is helpful because I think most of us view envy as not that big a deal. Jealousy, eh, not that big a deal. But when you look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, so this is the big 10. And I realize there's more than 10 commandments in the Old Testament, but the big 10, envy makes the list. Coveting makes the list. Exodus 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. It is so detrimental that it made the top 10. I always think it'd be interesting, like, if we just put together some people and had a committee and put together the the top 10 commandments, I don't think it would look the same. But God is all-knowing and we are not. He sees the danger and the devastation and the corruption of envy and coveting and jealousy. And you're like, well, that's Old Testament, Derek. Well, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21, says this. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitious, dissensions, factions, and envy. And I think they're twins drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so for us to say that envy, jealousy, coveting is not that big a deal is to ignore what the scripture actually tells us. And so I, for one, am reminded and convicted when I see that this is, these are commands of God. It also is good to remember the calling of God. Everybody has a specific calling. There are things you are called to do. There are things I'm called to do, and we're to walk that out. And when we envy, we're, we're like, for whatever reason, we're saying God's call on my life is not good enough. I want your call. I want your gifts. I want your position. I want your opportunities instead. I think of a man who completely missed his calling. His name was Emmanuel Ninger, and he was a remarkable artist. His first name's Emmanuel, so maybe his uh, parents were Christian. I don't know that, but Emmanuel means God with us. So it's, it has a name with a history, a rich history. It's one of the names Jesus goes by. And he's this remarkable artist. And for years, they were hunting for him because he used his gifts not to, you know, paint portraits and sell them, but instead he would hand paint U.S. currency. He got the right paper. He had it all figured out. And his specialty were $20 bills. So he was a counterfeiter. They finally caught him. He did six years of time. And what was interesting is they took his stuff and they sold it. You know, they got rid of it. And um, his portraits that he did, they would sell for about 5000 a piece. And he admitted when they interviewed him and talked to him that it took him the same amount of time to do one of his portraits that would sell for $5,000 a piece and to do a $20 bill. That's just stupid dumb. He missed his calling. 
God had given him a unique set of gifts, a beautiful, impressive gift, and he used it. He went off the rails because he was greedy, because he was envious of those who had money. So the next idea is, so we need to remember the commands of God and the calling of God on our lives, but also be careful with comparison. Comparison. We really should step away from comparison as much as possible. Envy often begins by comparing yourself with your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, whoever it might be, and it gets us into trouble. You go to the high school reunion And you felt really good about your life until you met that old friend of yours. And boy, he seems to have surpassed you in pretty much everything. You're like, oh, his job is better. His wife's prettier. His kids seem, you know, like they're succeeding. You know, you just click through the list. And oh, did you see the car he drove up in? Of course, he might have rented it for one night. But be careful with comparison, One Christian author said this, and I really appreciate it. He said, look, we have a tendency to compare our behind the scenes with somebody else's highlight reel. This is why social media gets us. This is why social media, uh, there's studies that say that if you want to depress yourself, spend a lot of time on social media. I had to laugh one time. I was, it was winter. I slid off the road. It was on the steeps, and I'm in the ditch, and, you know, it's dead of winter, super cold, and I'm like, well, you know, I'm waiting for the tow truck, and so I jump on Facebook, and I'm sitting there, and a friend of mine is posting pictures of their trip to Hawaii, and I'm like, really? <laughs> Watch the comparison game was reading a Gallup organization poll. They polled North Americans, asked them how much annual income they need to consider themselves rich. Those making 30000 a year said to be considered rich that they would need to be $74,000 a year. Those who made $50,000 a year said that they would feel rich if they made $100,000 a year. The bottom line is that um, if I took a little survey here, what, you know, what would be rich? I suspect that your answer would be a number that's higher than what you make, right? I wouldn't guess the number, but I could guess a summary word, more. Because we have a tendency to be envious, to be jealous of those that make more than us. The problem is, and it's been said, that when you, when you catch up with the Joneses, they've already moved. You know, we strive for this. And... So, so avoid comparison, or if you're going to do comparison, at least be more realistic about it. At least step back and think about the whole world. Don't just think about like focusing on who's on our media, which are the rich and famous and, and all of that. I mean, half the world, um, 50% of the world's population lives on less than two American dollars a day. I suspect you're doing better than that. Three to five percent of people in the world own a car. We own two. I was reading, uh, I'll give you the source. The book is Weird by Craig Groeschel, page 71. If you earn 70, 30, excuse me, earn $37,000 a year, you're in the top 4% of all wage earners alive today certifiably rich by anyone's definition. If you make $45,000 a year or more, you're in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Now, that book is, is a little older. It's a few years older. 
But I want you to stop and think about that. So if you're going to do comparison, at least make it more realistic. At least acknowledge you live in a prosperous, free, very blessed place. Now, do I think it's spiraling down? Yes, I do. But we have been so blessed in many ways. Be careful comparing yourself with those that aren't Christian or um, those outside of the faith. Psalm 73, verses 3 through 5, and then 16 and 17, and then 25 and 26. Let me read this. The psalmist admits, he says, For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. When I, cry, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Think about their final destiny. Eternal separation from all that is good and light and beautiful and loving. Those that aren't in Christ. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is your portion. You are part of a family. You have received forgiveness of sins. You can look forward to eternal life in a place of beauty and wholeness and health and happiness and joy. The next idea is to accept God's sovereignty. The reality is that life is a gift, and the life you have right now is a gift from God. Jesus, who we claim to follow, he wanted the life that, his, that came from the hand of his Father. That's what he wanted. Nothing more, nothing less. Who are we to turn around and go, God, what were you thinking? Why didn't you give me that talent? Why didn't you give me that position? And so we are to acknowledge he is sovereign and turn to him, not complain and grumble and moan and be envious of others. James 4, verse 2 and 3, the line is a little ways in. You do not have because you do not ask God. He is sovereign. We are to ask him for what we need. And if it is good for us, the Holy Spirit interprets that and we will receive it. Isaiah 14, verse 24, reminds us of the sovereignty of God. Um, the Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. As I have purposed, so it will happen. He is sovereign. He is moving us towards a destiny. I find, I, I actually, you know, I said here in the outline, accept God's sovereignty. I love the word rest in God's sovereignty. Rest in it. Accept the beauty of now. Accept the beauty of the life that he has giving you, given you. I think one of the best examples of this is Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of the first king of the Jewish nation, Saul, who was wicked. And Jonathan was good. He was holy. He was a great soldier. He was a great leader. And yet he finds out that God has appointed not him, as you would expect, the son to follow the father in the kingship, but appointed David, this other person. But Jonathan was a friend to David. And I love this interaction. In 1 Samuel 23, 17, he says, Don't be afraid. This He's talking to David. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel. I love this line. And I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. I love this. He accepts the sovereignty of God even when God didn't give him the position that I assume he wanted. 
And he's happy for David. He's for David. He manages to push down that envy and that jealousy and that coveting and to be for David. Isn't that beautiful? Rest in God's sovereignty. Also practice gratitude. That's the next principle. If we would practice gratitude, it would transform our lives. It should be a way of life for us. You know, whether it's, you know, you teaching children to write thank you notes, which almost have disappeared now. But to be people who express gratitude, who feel gratitude, who walk in gratitude. James 1.17 reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. What are you grateful for? Beauty, nature, the northern lights, your family, a spouse, children. Maybe you have good health. So many of us have a spiritual amnesia or a, or a soul amnesia, and we forget the blessings that God has given us. It's so easy to do. It's so easy to focus on what we don't have and not acknowledge what we do have. Luke 17, verse 17 through 19, Jesus had offered healing to 10 lepers. These people had this terrible skin disease. I mean, literally parts would rot off their body. They would, it was terrible. They'd lose fingers. They'd lose their nose. It, it was awful. They were ceremonially unclean. Everywhere they went, they had to yell, unclean, unclean. People would clear a path. So they had no family. They had no social life. They were, they were in agony as far as their health. And Jesus healed them, 10 of them. And they went and did what he said, go to the priest and have yourself declared healthy. And then out of the 10, one came back and said, thank you. One came back and said, thank you. How are we doing at expressing gratitude? The person that serves you coffee. The spouse that helps you make the, the family work. The boss that's gracious and has given you a job that provides. Those that serve in our military and protect our freedom. How grateful are we? Be the one. Don't be part of the 90, the 9 out of 10. I love a song by C.C. Winans. It's called The Goodness of God. She has a line. She says, um, speaking to God, she says, your goodness is running after me. I think most of us, if we look at it, we see that his goodness is running after us, that we practice gratitude. Jesus, when he's facing the cross, if you put the gospel accounts together, it looks like that final Passover meal, that multiple times in that final meal with the cross hanging over him, he knows it's coming. He knows it's about to happen. And it says he stopped and he gave thanks. Wow. So if you're in a rough season, you're in a painful moment, stop and give thanks. It helps. Ann Voskamp, an author I like, she talked about her little boy, and she, he's sitting in the kitchen. I think she'd made brownies, and he's sitting there. He's wiggling his little tooth, and, and he's eating some brownies. And she's just looking at him, and he just, he gave her one of those sweet moments, you parents, you know, these, these delightful little moments. He just looked at his mom, and he said to Anne, he said, I love you, mom. And then he kind of waved his hands, and he said, and all this. Isn't that a beautiful moment of gratitude? What's your all this? 
Maybe you need to take a piece of paper and write down some of your all of this. We also need to embrace contentment. It's wrapped up with gratitude. Stephen Wright once said, you can't have everything. Where would you put it? And so we have to be people that are content with what God has given us. We need to embrace the word enough. One old Puritan preacher called contentment a rare jewel. We need to look to God and say, you know, my paycheck is enough. You gave me the right spouse. These kids, they are the right kids. Celebrate the beautiful now that you're in. Hebrews 13.5, the author says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with all that you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We are offered the very presence of God, the relationship with God. In Philippians 4.11-13, the Apostle Paul, who was in jail at the time, wrote, I am not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. And he goes on. Whatever the circumstance, we need to embrace contentment. It's amazing what we, sometimes we forget what we're holding, what we have, and it would change the course of our lives. I was reading kind of a sad but almost funny story of Danny Simpson. It was 1990 in Ottawa, Canada. He went and robbed a bank, stole about $6,000. He gets caught. He gets thrown in jail. And they took his gun from him, the weapon that he used to do the $6,000 theft. It was a 45 caliber Colt semi-automatic, which turned out to be an antique that was made by the Ross Rifle Company in Quebec City in 1918. That pistol, depending on where you sold it, could be worth up to $100,000. Look at what's in your hand. Look at what your, your now has. God has given us amazing things, and yet so often we want more. We want something else. We need to grab hold of that concept and that word, enough. John Piper once said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And even some of the simple things, like think about your eyesight. I don't think anyone in here today is blind, but think about your eyesight, the beauty of that, the complexity of that, um, the Wealthy Bill Gates, you know, had $35 billion. This was back in 1997. And somebody asked him, would you give up all your money if you were blind to get your sight back? And he said, absolutely. What's your sight worth? Just think through all that you've been given. Psalm 23.1, we need to learn like David to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. We're so blessed Final idea is this, celebrate others. Romans 12, 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Sometimes I think it's easier to mourn with those who mourn than to rejoice with those who rejoice, especially if they got the promotion you wanted. But we're called to rejoice with those who rejoice. This is a death shot to the heart of envy and jealousy. To celebrate when someone, you know, is kind of hitting that envy button in your heart. To actively begin to pray for them. Lord, bless them. You know, we want to celebrate others. So the big idea is this. Guard your heart. Celebrate the life God has given you. Guard your heart. 
Celebrate the life God has given you. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you for this time together. We're grateful for it. Lord, we thank you for the season we're in. We thank you for what we own. We thank you for the relationships we have. Lord, you have been good to us. We acknowledge life as a gift. We acknowledge salvation as this beautiful, expensive gift that you offered us through the life, death, and resurrection of your son. Lord, help us to be people who embrace enough. Not jealous, not envious, not covetous. Lord, you are our portion. You are our father. You are enough and the relationships that you put in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, amen.